0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, hello, Gail. Um, Today is um, the time for our question and answer session for the month of March, uh, where you're going to answer questions from the IMC (coughs) online community.
1: Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it.
0: And... um, We have a series of questions, Uh, the first one being from um, uh, an anonymous um, um, friend, and um, she says, uh, I have deep remorse, uh, sorrow, not guilt, about my behavior toward my son when he was growing up, some harmful effects of which are still apparent in his self-regard and life choices. Years ago, when I realized how hurtful I had been, I made it my highest priority and mission to bring my behavior in line with my loving intentions. I have expressed my profound regret to my son, and our relationship is good and loving now. But I see that I cannot undo some of the damage. I am not seeking forgiveness or any sort of absolution. They won't change the facts. As soon as I realized that I had harmed my own child, I knew that I would be sorry for the rest of my life. But I would like to have a Buddhist context for remorse, a precept or belief that I can repeat to myself many times a day when I feel the sorrow.
1: Well, I'm uh, very impressed by the honesty and the way in which you have dealt with your past behavior. Um, I think uh, generally Buddhism emphasizes being forward-looking rather than backward-looking when we've caused harm to other people. So that means that rather than dwelling in the past and regretting it and become a victim of your own past, we look at the past just enough to acknowledge what happened and then try to do better. Being forward-looking means we see how we can do better in the future. And that seems to be what you've done. And uh, it might be for the rest of your life that your regret uh, will be a fuel for you, a catalyst for you to continue to work on yourself, continue to uh, be a better person, uh, continue to do, to uh, try to bring, bring benefits to this world of ours. The... Um, I think the Buddhist approach uh, would be never to deny or be defensive uh, around whatever pain that you feel, but uh, to be completely open to feel it without uh, attachment or without resistance, and let it uh, inform you, let, it, uh, let the wisdom of it, uh, let your compassion uh, arise from it, and uh, then uh, try to do better in the world with it. In terms of what you might say... Uh, in a regular basis to remind yourself. <clears throat> in Zen tradition, <clears throat> they have a beautiful little poem <clears throat> that they recite regularly. And um, the poem goes, or the chant goes, All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. And, um, and here we're acknowledging it isn't just particular events, but maybe it's timeless. It goes back in endless time. You know, We've all made mistakes. We've all had difficulties and challenges. And, um, and to recognize that. And then um, to avow means to step aside, to acknowledge, to confess, and no longer stand behind it, no longer be committed to it. To be committed to uh, living a different life now. For some people, doing that chant uh, makes it a little bit less personal, because when we take these things too personally, it adds more suffering than it needs to be. Um, it's part of the human condition that, uh, unfortunately, that uh, we all make mistakes, and some of the mistakes are huge. And to recognize uh, that it's you know, it's not exactly personal. Uh, Sometimes make it makes it easier then to learn from our mistakes and then uh, try to become a better person uh, as a result.
0: Thank you. Next is uh, Ray from Glasgow in Scotland, who um, talks about having a tendency to control his breathing, and he says after almost a year now of meditating up to three sittings a day, I have managed to let the in breath come in naturally but the out-breath is still being controlled. During these times, I observe the controlling and still end up tensing up. How should I approach this?
1: It's a great question, and uh, I'm very appreciative that you've hung in there for this time and that you've done the work that it took to have half your breathing be natural. Um, I think it's very good to be very patient with the breath and not to uh, make it too much of a project that you're supposed to have a natural breath. Mindfulness unfolds um, from seeing clearly what is, and in seeing what is, learning to be um, non-attached to how things are. And if what's happening is that your breath is controlled, the task of mindfulness is to see that very clearly, and to learn to hold it with that spacious, uh, relaxed mind, to be calm about that. And it just happens that being relaxed and calm and about having a controlled, controlled breath is one of the best conditions for helping us uh, become more natural in our breathing. So, uh, but you're asking about the, the out-breath and how to maybe bring that to a more natural way, I think that to look more carefully at how you breathe out, uh, what happens when you breathe out, is a good beginning. And in particular, it might be useful to notice if there's any emotions that come into play as you breathe out. Um, and You have to maybe be very still or very attentive and, and uh, keep looking over and over again, but there might be some very subtle feeling, emotion that comes into play on the out-breath. Uh, I've known people for whom the out-breath was kind of a letting go of control, and, and they were afraid of giving up control. And so fear would kick in, especially near the end of the out breath. And so they would uh, would not breathe all the way out because it was somehow for their psyche, uh, it was too frightening to let go of control that way. Um, and so, you know, so I'm not saying that's your issue, but uh, uh, you might look and see. And connected to emotions is there might be a very subtle belief that's operating um, that's not directly connected to the breath per se. But the breath represents, many times, our relationship to the breath, many times, represents uh, how we relate to life in general. And um, so, for example, someone who feels that um, uh, they'll they'll never get anything back if they give anything away, uh, and always hoarding and holding on to uh, their things, might have the same attitude about their breathing, that they're fine breathing in, but then give, they have this attitude or this belief that if they give it away, they'll never get it back again. And, you know, rationally it seems like people wouldn't breathe with these kinds of ideas, but this can be, um, you know, uh, it's like the, the breathing somehow manifests in subtle, almost, almost unconscious ways, these deep belief patterns that we have. So looking more carefully and seeing what's go- going on can be helpful. Another thing that can be helpful with the breath uh, is sometimes it's useful to go, you know, if you've been a long, long time with having controlled breathing, then sometimes it's useful to go uh, work with someone who is a breath worker, someone who um, is trained to help people with their breathing. There's a variety of different um, schools of what's called breath work, people who specialize in, in working with people around their breathing. Um... There's a uh, a school of breath work coming out of Germany. I think it's called Mindeldorf. I apologize, I don't remember the exact name, but something like that. Um, I know there's not a lot of practitioners, but it's good work. Uh, Or sometimes body-based psychotherapy. There's a variety of psychotherapies that focus uh, on somatic experience more than talking about what's going on, where the therapist helps, guides the client to uh, feel their body, work discover what's in the body, what's held in the body. And sometimes that kind of body work uh, can be very helpful um, because of how much can be stored in the breathing. So all these things are useful, uh, but I still stress the most useful thing is to not be concerned, to be relaxed about your breathing. And, um, and just watch. Watch the controlled breath.
0: Next is Terry from Roush in the UK. Uh, who wants to know, how can the deluded mind become aware of its delusion, if it is caught in delusion? Also uh, wants to know if you have any thoughts on the main delusions of the most common ones.
1: That's a good question. and um, uh, There's many ways we can learn about our delusions. Uh, sometimes we can have a delusion, a certain understanding of how things are, and then at some point it becomes clear that that's not the case. Uh, We get new evidence. We might have a certain interpretation of a person, think the person is one way and operate as if that person is that way, and then we maybe actually get to know the person better and we find out the person isn't that way at all. Um, It still happens for me occasionally that um, I'll make a quick Judgment or evaluation of someone, and um, and then I get to know them better. And I said, well, I realized that um, I didn't really understand them. I had a kind of delusive idea or illusion I was operating under. So I've learned, for example, that when I first meet people, to be to be very careful to watch um, what happens in my mind and see the ideas that bubble up about, that I have about the person, and then to hold those very lightly and not necessarily believe it, uh, based on uh, flimsy evidence. As a person becomes more mindful, one of the very interesting um, developments is that you can watch the arising of a thought. And if you can watch the arising of a thought, uh, kind of stand back and see it arise, then the th- it's possible to look at the thought and question whether the thought is accurate or not. Um, if you're living in your thinking, then it's very easy to believe the thought is an accurate representation of what's really going on. And so if you step back and watch the arising of a thought then uh, and see it just as a thought, then a uh, the, uh, wise part of the mind can evaluate that thought and say, is that accurate? Is it wise? Is it deluded? And um, there are a lot of delusions. So, for example, um, you might be shopping And you see arising in your mind the thought that uh, if you can get a certain kind of snack, that then you will be happy. And because you step back and you watch the arising of that thought, it's a delusive thought, perhaps, and so you can watch the arising of it, and then you can question it and say, well, is this really true? And then you say, well, no, it's not really true. I'm completely full. If I have any more food, I'll probably throw up. And so you realize that it was just a delusion in the mind. Um, so a lot of there's a lot of delusions, common delusions people have about what will make them happy, um, what will make them secure. Um, a lot of them are based on desire. Some are based on aversion. Some delusions are based on fear. So sometimes by looking carefully at um, the emotions that are connected to particular thoughts or ideas... Um, we can get a hint uh, about whether you know we need to look more carefully about the accuracy of it, and um, um, and then the last thing I'll say about it is that it's really useful to ask um, your friends if you have an idea or an interpretation or uh, evaluation of something or belief. Um, check it out with other people and see if. Um, they share it or if they have a different different point of view or something and sometimes your friends can point out if you're deluded
0: thank you Gail next is a question from Kevin in Florida my father is a convicted sex offender who was released on probation after a prison sentence I do meet with him regularly he is still in complete denial every time I see him the anger and hurt well up what feels like unmanageable levels. Yet I am civil and unchallenging. I feel that the anger has penetrated into my personal and work relationships. I do meditation and yoga regularly. But the ongoing nature makes me wonder if I am perhaps not approaching my practice in a right-minded way.
1: Well, that sounds like a difficult situation to be in, and I'm sorry for you. Um, And, you know, it's very hard to advise someone without more information about the family dynamics and what's going on in a situation like this. But um, what comes to mind first is that the relationship between a child and a parent is very deep, and, uh, and so deep that it might not really be appropriate to only work on this uh, personally, like in your own meditation or your own Buddhist practice. There might be something really important that has to happen uh, in the relationship between you and your father. Um, and um, perhaps uh, without being angry at him or, or blaming him or uh, saying that um, whatever, you um, um, but it might be very, very important for you to let inform your father. Let your fa- let your father know how all this is for you. How it how it was for you for your father um, to uh, spend time in prison for a sex offense. Uh, the confusion that arises, the shame perhaps, or the fear, or the anger, or the despair. Or, you know, I don't know what it, what it was for you. Um, But without uh, making eye statements, just saying how it was for you, um, and let him take it in without having to defend himself, so that he really understands what's going on for you. And if you're not letting him know what's going on for you, then it's not really an open or clear relationship, and the relationship can't really become maybe healed. Um, I don't know if you can just do the healing just by yourself on your own cushion, uh, he might not be able to hear anything. He might not be able to participate in that conversation. But it might be helpful for you if you at least try. And try it in a way that hopefully doesn't uh, close him down or, or have him withdraw from you. Uh, it might be helpful for you to spend a little bit of time with a therapist where you have a chance to talk about your feelings, your ideas um, around all this, so that when you finally do talk to your father, there isn't a pent-up pressure uh, of emotions and ideas, but you've been able to kind of get some of the things off your chest and heard yourself speak about them. And it also can be, if your father's willing, it might be helpful to actually to uh, have the conversation with him mediated with someone, and uh, maybe a family therapist uh, can be there and uh, support the two of you so the conversation is safe from everyone. And, um, uh, And uh, can guide you uh, in a process of uh, healing and reconciliation. So I wish you well with that.
0: Thank you. Next question is from Jeff in London. And uh, he says Since I have restarted meditating with strong motivation, my sleep has changed. I am waking up around three o'clock in the morning or sometimes earlier. And I get up and meditate and listen to audio talks. I work roughly 9 to 6 p.m., and I used to sleep fairly normal hours, from 11 o'clock to 7 a.m. Is this change of sleep, a lot less of it, healthy? I don't seem to be getting chronically tired yet, and I'm getting loads more done. But I wonder if it should be avoided or encouraged.
1: It's uh, not uncommon for some people to need less sleep when they start to meditate. And um, uh, meditation itself can substitute for the need for sleep because of the deep rest that some people can get in meditation. And also, as we meditate, there is sometimes less um, reactivity in daily life. We're calmer in daily life. And so there's less less need to... um, Rest from you know living stressful way, and finally sometimes meditation can process some of the psychological needs that uh, normally are processed through dreams, and so again there's less need for sleep. Um, I think that if you're operating completely fine and your friends are telling you that you're normal, that um, it's fine not to, to to do with less sleep. But if after a while you feel like you're dragging, or getting irritable, or you ask your friends, you know, know, if they think you're okay, and they say, you're fine, um, then please, by all means, uh, sleep less. And um, enjoy all the time and the meditation. Use it really well.
0: Thank you. This is our last question. What do you mean, Guillaume, when you said, in any conversations... Between two practitioners, both practitioners should protect each other's solitude. This is a question from Marilyn in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that was a quote from um, a, a book called *The Letters to a Young Poet* by uh, Rilke, and so it might be you know you can go back and see what he meant. But one of the things that I mean by that is that um, I think it's very important to. Uh, leave people alone in their responsibility for themselves uh, it, it's it's uh, we do a disservice to people if we take too much responsibility for their happiness and try to uh, fix them help them and sometimes some people are get are held hostage by their responsibility to make other people happy or something uh, each person needs to be left alone in their to be responsible for their own happiness because only by taking responsibility for oneself will um, one really find liberation and freedom.
0: Thank you. So this concludes our session. Thank you so much, Gil.
1: Great. Very nice. Thank you for sending the questions and I look forward to answering more of them. Bye-bye.